Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've never been so uh, thankful to be called Scornhorn instead of Hot Dog, I guess. It could have been a, a lot worse for me. But as many of you know, we just got back from our Radius Students Camp, all students across all campuses. So six campuses, 150 students. It was incredible. We were super tired. We like, were sweating the entire week. It was disgusting, but it was awesome at the same time. There were reports that one student slept for 16 hours yesterday. Uh, they're in this section up here in the front. It, I think they're true. I would have probably checked their pulse if it was me, but it was a great week. I was grateful to wake up this morning with my voice again. It's hanging on by a thread, but um, it was a great week. We took a group photo, just Radius Lexington students. Uh, everyone was flexing. We all agreed we would caption it Radius Flexington. So if you see it, if you see it. Uh, so we had a great time. Uh, probably one of my favorite things was leading the yellow team. It was Shark Week. There's Megalodon, Great White, and we were the baby sharks. And we put up a fight. It was awesome. And the last event, the marathon, was for all the marbles. It was us and one other team right there. We were going for it. And the students asked me this morning, are you nervous to speak this morning? And I was like, I'm not half as nervous as I was for the marathon. <laughs> and we made a comeback. We took the lead, and we ultimately lost. So... I don't know what that means for this morning, but I'm 0 for 1 on the week. But it was a great week. A lot of great things happened. But by far, like by far, my favorite moment of the week, we're in worship. I'm surrounded by 150 students, and they're all worshiping and crying out, I depend on you. I depend on you. Like, I can't I'm this is my first time. I'm about to get choked up. Like, I'm watching these kids saying, I depend on you. If that's the only thing that got out of the whole week, I'm so content. If the only thing they got out of this week at camp was a dependency on Jesus, was acknowledging, like realizing that how dependent we are on him, I'm incredibly happy. And the sweat and the four hours of sleep were an incredible investment. Um, so today you may feel like you hear me say, uh, try harder, do better, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But if that's what you hear me say, then either you heard me wrong or I, I didn't do my job and I failed. Because hopefully what you hear me say this morning is, I depend on you, Jesus. I want that for all of us today, not just these students who went to camp this week. So let me pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, I'm just incredibly grateful that you showed up and moved in many different lives this week at camp. I pray that as... As we come home and school starts up, they would lean on you. And they would continue to depend on you and your people. I'm excited to look this morning at a great person of faith who has gone before all of us. I do pray that you would raise up great people of faith out of the 150 students that sought you this week. We depend on you. Amen. So y'all ever had something that you really, really wanted? Like You really wanted it, you really treasured it, but you knew it was going to take a really long time to get couple examples in my life. I'll tell you one, and hopefully as I tell you that story, it'll also allow some of you who don't really know me to get to know me a little bit better. So I'm not from Lexington. I'm not from South Carolina. I'm not from here in any way, shape, or form. I've been a resident of South Carolina for about a year, and to be honest, it still feels a little bit wrong. I've been a resident of Omaha, Nebraska for the first 25 years of my life, and so let's go. Go Big Red. I don't, I don't, I don't shout that out much. I know. I'm, like, I'm not trying to get just railed like all the South Carolina fans. I get it. But 
for the first 25 years of my life, that was my identity, my residence, and outside of Omaha, or the College World Series, Omaha means nothing to all of you, I get it. But that's actually really helpful because I don't live too far from the College World Series. Went to it every year, worked it, lived really near, really close by the stadium. And uh, our neighborhood is actually a pretty interesting one, lots of history, but it's really pretty rough and ghetto, a lot of substance abuse, um, lots of poverty. But my family's lived there for decades. My grandfather moved there back in the day. And when he moved his family there, he was a heavy alcoholic. And so, to be honest with you, he fit in pretty well down there. And so that's where we lived. Uh, eventually, his addiction led to marital problems with my grandmother. And by the Lord's grace, it led to his salvation. He repented. He gave up alcohol and walked with the Lord until the day he died. And because of that, it changed the trajectory of our whole family, not just mine, but our extended family from one that was identified was like by addiction to one that was identified as followers of Christ, though imperfectly for sure. But it wasn't all glitz and glamour. Like that, that vice of alcohol was not just isolated to him, just specific to him. It did, it did spread to some other people. A couple of his sons got caught up in it. One, my uncle got caught up in drugs, uh, eventually led to his death. But because my grandfather saw the danger of drugs in our neighborhood and they were rampant and he saw the dangers of alcohol from his own experience, he was wise and he made a deal with one of his daughters who would be my aunt. He said, if you don't drink or do drugs until you're 21, then I'll give you a $100 bill for both. Now that's $200 and back in the day, it's not today, it's back in the day. So it's worth even more then. So she was really smart and she abided by it and she followed. And so she lived her childhood and she never drank or did drugs. Really, really well played by my grandfather. And so, but she did that, but somewhere along the way, he forgot. She reached 21, she never got a reward. And so she's telling me about this and I'm, I'm asking her like, how did, tell me about that. And she just said, I didn't care about the money because he has given me everything. She's not talking about providing for her, giving her food, a house to live. Like what he saved her from and making that deal saved her from so much. And he had given her everything. She was grateful. That was her reward. The only reason I know this story, it's a pretty personal story, right? The only reason I know it is because when I hit a certain age, my aunt, same aunt, was on the other side of it, made that deal with me. She sees me, the troublemaker I was becoming in that neighborhood, really just troublesome child, and she took action. So she says, Stevie, if you don't do drugs or drink, then when you're 21, I will give you a great reward of money. See, she didn't give me no dollar amount. She, she left it open. But I was like, hmm. I knew I could trust her, though, because this aunt, she, she would always provide for us on Christmas, birthdays. Uh, she always made sure we had good, nice stuff. And she, she really took care of us in a lot of ways, blessed our family. She didn't have to. Um, and so I knew that I could trust her. And so she must have known me pretty well because it highly motivated a young man with not a lot of money in his piggy bank. So I live and I, I go about my childhood and I clung, to this, I clung to this promise, this future reward. Oftentimes I get made fun of, I'm not going to lie. I get left out or I get rejected because I wouldn't participate in the activity. Um, but once again, it didn't really matter to me. And not because I was so strong and so holy, not the case but because my eyes were on a greater treasure in the future. I wanted that so much more to like, 
I really want y'all to let's get this straight real quick. This is not some sort of virtue signal. I was not a great kid. This was not me. Uh, I just didn't want to drink. I'm better than you. This was me like, y'all could drink. I want the money. I had a selfish ambition for this reward. It wasn't a great motive. I'm not going to lie, but it worked. My only regret is I just wish my aunt made that same deal with me in some other areas of my life, like getting in fights, maybe getting kicked out of school. That would have probably saved me a few suspensions. But by the Lord's grace, in this one area, I made it to 21. Time passed, same thing. I didn't get my reward. But I had the same thought that my aunt once had. I didn't really care anymore. It was motivating to me for so long, but at this point, I just realized she had given me everything. But then one day, I'm sitting here, and I get this package. And it's from my aunt. I'm like, all right, hold up. What could this be? And she always knew that I wanted this gold chain, but I was never going to buy it. I looked at it 100 times, but it wasn't going to happen. And so I opened up this package, and lo and behold, it's a gold chain I always wanted. This was my reward. This was my reward for making it to 21. Now, this may seem like a bit of a heavy story. I get that. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just meeting you. I'm like, hey, I'm Stevie. It's nice to meet you. Let me tell you my deepest, darkest story of my life. I get it. I'm sorry about that. But the reason I tell you that is because besides marrying Kinsey, it's the best example in my life where I persevered at getting a treasure that I was after, all by keeping my eyes fixed on that treasure so I didn't go astray. Today, we're going to look at a man named Moses who also persevered by keeping his eyes fixed on a great treasure. And his treasure was far better than some gold chain. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, just bless us as we open your word. Pray that it wouldn't be words on a page, but that uh, your spirit would move. It's in Jesus' name. Hebrews 11, verse 23, uh, if you got it on your, out there, you can open up or it'll be on the screen. So verse 23, it says, by faith, when Moses was born, his parents hid him for three months because they saw the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. So I was wondering right out of the gate, why does it say he's beautiful? I get it. Every parent thinks their child is beautiful. We all think our child is the most beautiful, but it's still weird. It's mentioned in the Bible, so it's kind of odd to me. So I was like, all right, Russell. I hit up Russell. I'm like, Russell, I know you're busy, my man, but give me a good biblical, theological, solid answer. Why does it say that Moses was beautiful? It is what he sends me. He looked like me? Real helpful. I guess maybe he meant bald. I'm not sure. Contrary to popular belief, he didn't look like Russell. We know from Acts that Moses was beautiful to God because he was chosen for a specific purpose and plan. And for whatever reason, maybe it was his beauty, his parents could see that. And so they were not afraid of the king's edict. Further, it says that they were not afraid of the king's edict. We might be wondering why there's the edict, what this is all about. Well, Moses and his family were Hebrew people, the Israelites, and they're enslaved to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are putting them to work. They got them enslaved. And the Egyptian king's name is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he's pretty smart, I suppose. He sees the people that they're starting to outnumber, the Egyptians, and he's like, we better do something about this, otherwise they're going to overtake us. So he sends out an edict to kill all the young boys in the land. But Moses' parents were not rocking with that. They're like, we're not going to kill our baby. 
we're, we fear God, we're going to save him. So they put him in a basket. They sent him down the Nile River and trusted him to the Lord. He's flowing down the river. Pharaoh's daughter's down in the river and sees him, adopts him as her own, but she needs a mother to nurse him. So Moses' sister is following, watches, speaks up, volunteers her own mother to be Moses' the one to nurse him. And so now what's happening is Moses' very own mother is getting paid to raise her own son instead of killing him because she feared God instead of man. It's really crazy. Moses grows up, spoilers, parts the Red Sea, the Lord parts the Red Seas. They walk through it. There's Passover. There's a bunch of crazy stuff in the wilderness. You should read it. It's in Exodus. It's incredible. If you, if you want to get the shortcut, you can watch The Prince of Egypt, but I do encourage you to read the book. It's amazing, and we're not going to get to all of it today, so that's why I give you some of the spoilers. But this is how Moses found himself in, the Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's house. Verse 24, by faith when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. See, Moses, he grew up as royalty. He's in this, like, kingdom. He has riches. He's the adopted grandson of the king. And we all know how grandchildren get treated. And so this dude is, he's royalty. But there came a point, I don't know exactly what happened, but there came a point, and he refused the right. He said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. In a kingdom opposed to God, my people's God, opposed to my people, he didn't want to do it anymore. So he says he refused it. And we all, we want to refuse all sorts of things. Students, we talked a lot of this week about things we want to refuse. Maybe it's pornography or gossiping, making fun of people at school. Maybe we just think we're better than other people. Hopefully we say things like, I don't want to be like this anymore, like Moses did. But what happens when right after Moses says this, he goes down and he kills an Egyptian guard. Oh, hold up, Moses. I thought you were different now. I thought you gave up that sin. I thought you were on the straight and narrow. What happened now? Anybody else ever done something really dumb right after they said they wouldn't do it? Yeah, me too. It kind of makes you want to, like, go somewhere and hide. Don't want to see nobody. Well, that's exactly what Moses did for 40 years. Like I said, students, we made this same confession. We made commitments that we, when we come back from camp and go back to school, things we want to do differently, want to be more involved with each other, whatever it is, the things that we committed, there's tons of them. But we get so discouraged when we come back and then we fall right back in and we make the same mistake and we start to think, oh, it's over for me. I made this mistake again. Like God's going to give up on me. I'm pretty sure Moses had that same thought when it was year 38 or 40 and God still hadn't come back and called him back to Egypt. I'm pretty sure Moses was thinking, yep, God gave up on me. God let Moses wait for 40 years to humble him. He was so humble, so much so that he no longer thought God could or would even use him to deliver the people. As if God is somehow limited by our capabilities, we'd all be in trouble. Amen. So God made Moses dependent on him, just like we sang at camp. And God extended grace to Moses, despite his failures. Moses didn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. He didn't just do better and try harder. He didn't look to himself. He fixed his eyes on his true treasure, the God who was calling him. Through his, though his execution was not flawless, Moses was able to resist sinful pleasures of all sorts because he had his eyes fixed on a greater treasure, just like the story I told at the beginning. 
A lot easier said than done, as we all know, because here's what we got to understand. He's a man. He's in a palace, like I talked about, and he's faced with a choice. I can enjoy great, luxurious life full of fame and power, comfort, and the pleasures of sin, fine print, which are fleeting, the passage tells us. Or I can step out of the kingdom, off a throne, off, out of power to be mistreated, to be made low like a slave, and then to be rejected and get made fun of, like just like my story, except for that's some peer pressure. This is like him being rejected by the very people he's trying to save. I don't know about you, but like giving up a high-status job, a nice house, and a citizenship to a country that's extremely powerful does not sound like a great, a great deal to go suffer with God's people. It, just, it doesn't sound like a good idea. So then why did he do it? Because verse 26 says, He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For his eyes were fixed on the reward. His eyes were fixed on the reward. The only reason you choose suffering over treasures is if you got your eyes fixed on a greater treasure later. He was able to give up all the money in the world, great status, to suffer for Christ. Because his eyes were on a prize that would last a whole lot longer than whatever Egypt had to offer him. It's been said that maturity is being able to delay gratification. Moses had to say, some, say no to something in the moment so that he could say yes to something greater in the future. It's kind of like when we're dating somebody and we really don't want to wait till marriage. But maturity puts off that gratification in the moment for greater gratification later, right? The people that are able to do that, it's not that they don't have them same feelings or desires. It's really that they want a greater gratification later, and they don't want to compromise in the moment. So it's looking, it's delaying gratification to later. If Moses wasn't focused on his true treasure, he would have been quickly led astray. And the times he was led astray, I believe that's what happened. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt without fearing the king's anger, for he persevered as though he could see the one who is invisible. For he persevered as though he could see the one who is invisible. Not only was Moses able to resist temptations of sinful pleasures, treasures of the world, but now we see the fear of man. He was able to resist that. And he did it by keeping his eyes on a greater, tre the greater treasure, the one who is invisible, his God. See, I was, I was thinking like faith in God, you, you fear God when you have faith in it. it does, it's not compatible with a fear of man. Like, they don't go together. It doesn't make sense. Typically, when we're fearing man, we're not fearing God. It just doesn't go together. Like, if I'm fearing God, what's a man going to do to me? He's going to kill me? Then what? Then I'm with Christ. Man can kill the body, but then what? God has power over the body and the soul. I think Moses knew that. As student director, I get the pleasure spending tons of time with the high school, middle school students. I love it. Uh, obviously, we just did that for a week at camp as students. We talked about this a lot at camp, too, um, in small groups. It's like our greatest treasure in high school and middle school to have acceptance by our peers. It's our greatest treasure. We talked about it a ton. It, it, it's so dear to us. It affects us in all sorts of ways. It's crippling. gives us anxiety, depression. It's, it's really crippling. Uh, it affects the decisions we make. It makes no sense. Like, we'll buy things we don't need to impress people who we don't even know. It makes no sense. And then we're left feeling empty because it wasn't fulfilling. And we might do it again. I've been there many times. I can remember buying these shoes. I didn't even really like that much. 
to impress this kid who I didn't even really know that much. And I also didn't even really like him. So I don't even know why I'm trying to impress some person at school. It makes no sense. But we want this accepted so bad. It, it controls all sorts of things in our life. But let's be real. It's not just students who struggle with that. We do too. At the time, I couldn't see exactly what my reward was going to be, but I trusted that it would be great. And I trusted that it would be something that would last a whole lot longer than the acceptance that was being offered to me in the moment. Moses didn't fear man because he had his eyes fixed. His heart was fixed on a greater treasure, on the one who is invisible. So today, I want us to ask ourselves, I've been trying to ask myself, what is your treasure? What do I treasure? Is my treasure, is our treasure in Christ and serving our church and serving our family that our kids would not only know about Christ, but that they would love him and that they would cry out, I depend on you? Or is my treasure in my new house or the safety of the suburbs or being respected? Or maybe it's our kids' success. I don't know what it is. It's worth asking the question, though. Moses had all these things, and he counted them as nothing compared to Christ. A lot of us wrestle with how much of our family's time is going to be invested in sports, club sports, or their spiritual health. I'm not sure. I I don't know what the balance is, to be honest with you. I told the students that this week because time after time, student after student comes comes up, and they're talking to me about about how horrible their sports teams are for their spiritual health. And I'm like... As an athlete who loves to compete and who loves sports, I'm not saying just quit and go live in a cocoon and, like, hibernate somewhere for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that. I didn't tell them that. But we did talk a lot about balancing that time, which is unavoidable, with time with each other, whether that's as students on Sunday nights or outside of that, to balance that out because we, we become like our peers. Parents, we know that. And so I, I basically told him, I don't really know the balance, but I do think it needs to be balanced. We can't just be all of our time here because it will be detrimental. All I know is whatever we ultimately value is exactly what we will ultimately prioritize. I think that's why Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So once we figure out what our treasure is and what it is that we truly value, then we need to be reminded of it. And we need to be reminded of it over and over and over and over again because we're forgetful. We forget. And so Moses wrote for us. It's very helpful since we're talking about Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, probably haven't read it in a while. Um, Kind of an odd, I guess, passage to bring up. Verse 2 is not going to be on the screen, but that's where I'm going to start. He says, Remember these commands so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk, to, talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you go to bed and when you get up. Tie them around your hands. Wear them on your forehead as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. He's saying put them everywhere because if you don't, you'll forget and we're very forgetful. As many of you guys know, the Smiths were in a really a horrible car accident while they were on their family vacation recently. Um, it's, it's really, really tough situation, but it's been cool to see God answer many prayers and see people rally around them. 
as, uh, as has been mentioned and posted, uh, Becca, their daughter, who had the worst of the injuries, wrote on her arm that day, heaven is on the way. It's really ironic, I guess you could say. But what I just can't get over is here's a girl who's in Hawaii. Now, I have one thing on my bucket list, and it's to go to Hawaii. And I think that because Hawaii is, to me, as much paradise on earth as you could get. You got this beautiful sand and the ocean. You got, like, this jungle and, like, beautiful waterfalls. They got at this resort they're staying at, great food. They have everything that you could want that we would really have to offer to say is paradise. And a lot of times, that's what I describe heaven as. Like, I don't know, paradise, I suppose. And she has all this, everything that we have to offer. And her eyes were fixed on being with Jesus. That was her treasure. That was far more valuable than whatever Hawaii had to offer. She quite literally tied them around her hands, wrote them down as a reminder, just like Moses told us to do. That is keeping our eyes fixed on our treasure. Maybe it's a sticky note on a mirror. A lot of people do a nice sticky note on a mirror. Uh, maybe it's a reminder on your phone. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Uh, we do, we do uh, reminders this week. You guys prayed at 152 for our students. That's the kind of thing that helps us remember to put our eyes on our prize. Mine is my phone background. I got it on there. It says, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. So that's really all that matters, and it's really easy to get my eyes off of that. So growing up in East Omaha was not all bad. I don't want y'all to get that from the story. It wasn't, it wasn't all bad. We had a lot of fun, learned a lot of lessons, good, bad lessons. One lesson in particularly that I learned was where to put my eyes. So everybody in East Omaha rides dirt bikes, four-wheelers, or some, or some sort of goat cart with a weed eater motor on it. There, <laughs> it's ghetto, but it gets it done. It's pretty incredible to see what people be riding around on. I remember when we got my first little dirt bike, 50cc, about this big, thing never wanted to start. Put my dad in the hospital one time. He's trying to kick that thing out in the sun. Um, but that was my first dirt bike. And I remember they put the helmet on me, and they sent me down the alley, and they taught me how to, how to get the gas, the throttle. They taught me back brake, front brake, and really steer. And then they put the helmet on me and sent me down the alley. Well, as soon as I take off, I forget everything. Only thing I don't forget is the throttle. And imagine that. I got that thing cranked. So, yeah, going down the alley, everyone's chasing after me. They're just hauling it. You're, you're thinking, well, why are they chasing after you? Because in front of me, I've got a light pole. And past the light pole, I see a ledge. And past the ledge is a street. And if I somehow made it through all of that, there's a brick wall on the other side. So I have no idea why they sent me down this alley. But that's where they sent me. And so I'm going. And I naturally see all these things that could potentially kill me. And I start going that direction. And I'm going, and I miss the light pole by a hair, and I still just, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, eh. and as I'm approaching this ledge, there was this, there was this hole in this like grassy area. My dad hated it. He was always trying to fill it with bricks and stuff. He's like, I don't, I don't even know why the neighbors dug it. He hated it. But I hit that hole. And on that day, I think my dad was very grateful that that hole was there. I hit the hole, flew over the handlebars, landed on my back, bike flipped over. I'm laying there probably crying. Everybody runs up to me. But 
The problem was I forgot how to turn. I didn't know how to turn. Maybe I forgot. I'm not sure. And if you know anything about riding a bike, a motorcycle, turning is incredibly important. It is probably one of the trickiest things. It's not a, you ain't got no steering wheel. You can't just crank that thing, lean back in the seats. It's not like that. There's not four wheels. You got to lean. You kind of turn away from your turn, all sorts of things you got to do, uh, all sorts of different techniques. But a really, really important thing about a motorcycle is when you're turning, and I'm coming up on a turn, you got to get your head up, and you need to look with your eyes through the turn. If you don't look through your eyes through the turn, and you look right there in front of you, you're gonna, the turn's going to go that way, and you're going to go that way. You're going to get hit by a car. You're going to slide out on the gravel. You're going to have to slam on the brakes, and hopefully you can stop. Bad things will happen. So when you're turning, you get your head up, and with your eyes, you look through the turn as you turn. Because when you do that, just like in my story, where your eyes go, the bike is sure to follow. Where our eyes go on a bike, the bike is sure to follow. And it's the same in our lives. You ain't got to take it from me. I crashed in the ditch. I get it. There's probably better people in the room you could get bike lessons from. But I learned from my lesson. Where our eyes go, the bike surely follows. And it's the same way in our lives. Where our eyes go, where our hearts are set on, our lives are sure to follow. So as we think about Moses, he had his eyes and his heart was fixed on the one who was to come. The one who was invisible. And he, I know he knew about Jesus because he prophesied about him. He said, there will be one who will come after me. You must listen to him. He pointed people towards him. He knew Jesus was coming. He didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. Just like I didn't know exactly what my reward was going to look like. But he knew it was going to be great and someone was going to come after him who he was pointing towards. Matter of fact, his whole life, not just his words, but his whole life pointed towards Jesus. All of his actions, his whole life was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, whose earthly life started the same way as Moses. His parents had to hide him to protect him from a king who was bent on murdering the male babies of the day. Pretty ironic. Jesus, who also stepped off his throne, came down to suffer with his people only for them to reject him. Jesus, who also led his people out of slavery and bondage and still does today. Jesus, who also mediated between God and man. I didn't tell you all about that, but Moses was mediating. Moses brought the old covenant. Jesus brought the new covenant. Moses brought the law from God and the Ten Commandments and all the other laws and rules, hundreds. Jesus comes and says, I fulfilled it. Jesus was the most humble man to ever live. The only person probably more humble than Moses. It says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Pretty ironic, the similarities. They go on and on, so I'll stop there. You can look it up, but it was amazing. But Moses, he wasn't perfect. He had his flaws, but Jesus was. See, we don't come up here each week and celebrate Moses right here. We come up and celebrate Christ crucified for me and for you. That's what we come up here to celebrate. When we take this bread and juice each week, that is our reminder to our hearts and souls to look to our treasure. That is a great reminder of the price that Jesus paid for us. That's fixing our eyes. See, this, he didn't know exactly what it would be yet, Passover, and he had an idea, but this was Moses' treasure, the one who was to come. That was his treasure, the Jesus, the coming Savior, and he kept his eyes fixed there, and his life surely followed. The passage forces us to ask ourselves a question. What is our treasure? And are we focused on it? Or are we focused on something else? Let's pray.